0: Welcome to the Five Good Ideas podcast, where we present the latest session of Maytree's popular program. My name is Elizabeth McIsaac, President of Maytree. We're a Toronto based organization committed to exploring solutions to poverty in Canada using a human rights based approach. For each session of Five Good Ideas, we invite experts to share five practical ideas on a key issue facing nonprofit organizations today. In this session, originally recorded on April 26, we asked Teresa Marquez, President and CEO of the Rideau Hall Foundation, for her five good ideas on how to build thriving partnerships within the charitable and nonprofit sector. While many of you are dialing in from across Canada and sometimes places beyond the borders, I'm speaking to you from Toronto. And I'd like to begin today's session by acknowledging the land where we live and work and recognizing our responsibilities and relationships where we are. As we are meeting and connecting virtually, I encourage you to acknowledge the place you occupy. I acknowledge that I am, and Maitreya is, on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit, and also covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, which was an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and the Ojibwe and allied nations to peaceably share and care for the lands and resources around the Great Lakes. So today's session, there are many compelling reasons why charities and non-profit organizations might seek to collaborate in different ways, to have greater impact, for broader reach to create efficiencies or perhaps when they're driven by funder interests. But as great as partnership and collaboration may sound, they can also be tricky to establish, nurture, assess and know when and how to end. In today's session we're really pleased to have Teresa Marquez who will present her five good ideas on how to navigate effective partnership development within the nonprofit and charitable space. Teresa Marquez is an established senior executive and educator in the nonprofit sector. She's currently the president and CEO of the Rideau Hall Foundation, an independent national charity with a vision for a better Canada. The foundation works to address key challenges facing the country in the areas of learning, equity, creating a culture of innovation, leadership development, and by strengthening Canada's culture of giving and volunteerism. For her full bio, plus her ideas and resources, please download the handout in the chat. It is now my pleasure to welcome Teresa. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Elizabeth. It is so great to be with you today. I'm joining you from the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. And I'm here today to talk about my own experience in developing strong partnerships across the charitable and nonprofit landscape. I'm especially pleased to be talking with the Matrix community, incredible social sector leaders from all parts of the country. When I was looking at the who's who in the room and preparing for this talk, a few things became pretty clear to me. First of all, this issue around collaboration and partnership building is something that people care about and that I think we're all grappling with. I think it's made clear by the turnout, but it's also made clear just through anecdotal Conversations that I've been having at a micro level, one-on-one with sector leaders, particularly over the course of the pandemic. I think in many ways, the pandemic has made stark our own vulnerability, and as well as our mutual interdependence as a people, as a sector, and as a country. And I think that's part of what might be driving the interest in this conversation today. Secondly, I think we're all looking for new solutions to increasingly complex challenges. And I think that there's a realization that long-term social change cannot be driven by any one of us alone. Old ways of working aren't gonna deliver the solutions that Canada needs. It's gonna take new kinds of collaboration and partnership to deliver change and change that's lasting. I think that partnership sounds good and it sounds benign and it sounds easy, but as we've learned at the Rideau Hall Foundation and as I've learned, it could be really hard to know where to begin, how to operate in partnership, how to be a good partner and when to end. And I'm thinking specifically about partnership and collaboration across the charitable sector and across nonprofits, less about between sectors, um, if you will, but we'll talk more about that kind of as we go. Thirdly, I think this audience represents a really significant kind of diversity within the charitable and nonprofit uh, sector, which is wonderful. You have so much more to share on this topic, and I'd love to try to surface your own experiences, lessons learned, and best practices. I'm not pulling myself out as an expert um, on partnership development, but rather as a work in progress and someone who is, who is learning by doing. The last observation before I get into the, the substance of today is that as I was preparing for this talk, I realized that it's a really personal conversation. It's about how well we play with others and it can be mirrored in how we act in our personal lives, in our families, in our communities uh, and at work. And I admit, I, I felt a degree of vulnerability even in preparing for this talk, because it's not objective. It's not about any one of the findings of a report that, we had, that, that we'd taken on or work that, that we had done or a new program that we'd launched. But I actually think that being open and vulnerable as a starting point is a really good way to learn, starting with humility and openness as to what might be possible. So even though I have five, what I hope are good points, I'm going to add in a sixth, a sneak attack on vulnerability, because I do think that being vulnerable is a really good place to begin to build real relationships. And that's what good partnerships are all about. So I'd like to start by telling you a little bit more about the Rideau Hall Foundation, because I think it's pertinent in many ways to the conversation today and to the five ideas that I'd like to share. As Elizabeth mentioned, we're a national charity based in Ottawa, and we're focused on building a better Canada for all Canadians to succeed and to thrive to their fullest potential. We work to amplify those values that serve to unite us as a country instead of divide us. All of our work is anchored along four areas of focus, around innovation in the country, widening the circle of giving and volunteering, leadership development and the leadership of our public institutions, and learning equity. So a broad scope of interest, but it's a broad country with complex needs to be tackled. Everything that we do is rooted in collaboration, which again has been an amazing starting point to help us engage in some very interesting and I think meaningful work, but nothing looks like anything else at the Rito Hall Foundation. So across those four areas of focus, we operate about 12 to 15 particular projects, and each project will have its own set of partners, its own metrics, its own outcomes, and its own modus operandi. When I think about the toolkit in terms of how we work in partnership, very simply, there seems to be four ways that we work. The first way of working, the first way of collaborating has to do with our convening role. So traditionally, the Office of the Governor General, which is independent from the Rideau Hall Foundation, has that as a primary responsibility and role to convene Canadians around issues of importance uh, to the country. So we've taken on more of that role as well, convening Canadians and organizations across sectors on key issues. We also work on catalyzing new initiatives. Once the conversation has happened, then what? We can work to bring together the right people, ideas, some resourcing, and some infrastructure to give a project a home for a period of time to catalyze it and then to set it on its way. The third way in which we work uh, is to bring funding to the table. So we're not a formal grant-making foundation, but we do have the ability to bring financial resources to the table. Sometimes that means a direct grant or contribution. Sometimes it means that we'll actually go out and fundraise for another project or organization that we're working with. And the last way of working is by playing that role of administrator or operating partner, where folks on our team serve as that operational uh, support system to a project that might not have the capacity to do it alone. This flexibility and range of ways of working is both a blessing and a curse, again, because nothing looks like anything else. It allows you to be really focused on the outcome that you want to see achieved and to bring the right tools and resources to the table without presuming what those tools and resources are going to be at the very outset. So with every partnership that we engage in, our starting point is really to say, how can we help? And the answer to that question will look a bit different each time, but it is very liberating. And I think uh, I've experienced that it's a very open question that can set the table for very effective partnership. That's probably enough of a preamble. I'm gonna, uh, who we are and what we're all about. And I'm happy to talk in more detail about anything RHF related a bit later on or in follow-up. But I'll turn now to what I hope our, Five good ideas or useful ideas that folks around this table can relate to and hopefully take away. A good idea is that I think form needs to follow function. Now, partnership uh, development across our sector can take many forms and be driven by many kinds of motivations. I spoke about four of the ways in which the Rita Hall Foundation partners with organizations across the sector. That is not an exhaustive list. I'm sure that across this proverbial room, there'll be lots of other different ways of working. But the point of this idea is that before you jump um, to a conclusion about the right form of partnership is, it's really valuable to start with a conversation about your values and on what's really important to you uh, and to your partner organization. I had the, the good fortune of spending some time last week with Sita Cobb, social entrepreneur extraordinaire from Newfoundland and one of the founding board members of the Rideau Hall Foundation. And what she really drove home for me is that the most important thing is to keep the most important thing, the most important thing. So if you say that three times fast, it'll begin to sink in. Um, But really, it's about figuring out what your internal goals are, as well as your shared goals, what the table stakes are for each party. So for each of the partners, what your respective sort of strengths, as well as challenges are, and then design the partnership model that best suits your particular situation. I think it's really important, again, not to make assumptions about your partner, um, what their motivations are for partnership, what their capabilities are. And you're gonna hear many sort of different iterations of don't assume throughout the next uh, little while. I think the big takeaway on this point or this idea is again, not to assume going in that you know what the final shape of the partnership will be. Give yourselves the time and space to create at the outset and to have those critical conversations about what is the most important thing that needs to keep being the most important thing. I'd like to give just one example to illustrate this from the RHF's perspective. Early on in the pandemic, we were approached by an organization called the, it's a mouthful, the Foundations for the Studies and Processes of Government. And FSPG ran a program for about 45 years called the Forum for Young Canadians. I'll just call it Forum because it's much easier. So Forum is a program that helped young people, young Canadians, learn about the functioning of our democracy, um, bringing young people to Ottawa to have an experience where they learn from each other and to learn about how our public institutions work. And it really tried to engender the sense of civic engagement that would last a lifetime. Uh, The pandemic was very challenging for this organization, and they were seeking more permanent operational sustainability. At the same time, um, we at the Rideau Hall Foundation were looking to uh, get behind programs and to back initiatives that were doing exactly what FORM was seeking to do, to grow and to nurture young leaders uh, who care deeply about the country and who know how to engage with our public institutions. Fast forwarding a little bit, we did have heavy conversations around what their values were, what they were hoping to see emerge from a potential collaboration. And from that, we developed a partnership model that saw Forum move into the Rito Hall Foundation. The program was essentially gifted to the RHF to take it forward in such a way that continued to prioritize the ongoing involvement of key leaders from that organization in the form of an advisory committee that continued to prioritize the values of Forum, that prioritize the brand as well. And just the incredible value behind the brand itself, which was felt to be very important by the board and which we believed to be important too. All these factors helped us build a partnership model that ensured continuity and a really smooth transition of this program that's now able to have a much longer term, uh, more permanent future under the umbrella of the Rita Hall Foundation. But I wouldn't have told you at the outset that we would have landed on this sort of merger when we started talking. It was really only through having those important conversations and frank conversations about what we're looking to achieve and what we valued in order to do so. From the RHF's perspective, I think understanding what FSPG, the other organization, valued allowed us to keep their priorities top of mind when we were making decisions um, about how to move forward. And that built trust. I know I'm fast forwarding to the fifth point on trust, but it did build trust and it built a really strong kind of basis of understanding, at which point everything else moved so much more quickly. So that's the first point really on, on just not assuming that you, not rushing to the chase on what form. Uh, the partnership should take. Take the time to really build the relationship and understand the motivations. The second good idea that I'd like to speak to is around being open to kind of unconventional arrangements or partners. And this point is really about being, again, open to experimentation and particularly to different viewpoints. I think um, many of us have encountered limitations to collaboration within the charitable and nonprofit sector about how organizations can work together, particularly when there's a flow of funding involved. This is not news to anyone in this room, but registered charities are limited in how they can direct funds to organizations that are not qualified donees. Now that's beginning to change. I think Bill 216 and its amendments to the charitable sector to legislation will hopefully make it easier for groups in our sector to collaborate effectively and efficiently and to direct resources wherever the resources need to go. But in the meantime, we've been able to develop ways of supporting organizations that are not qualified donees by being a bit creative. It took some time to sort through, and it was new to us, but I think it was time really well spent, and we now have a pretty effective model in place to be able to do more of that, again, by being a bit creative. One of our signature programs is called Catapult Canada, and it focuses on eliminating barriers to learning for young people across the country. Through the most recent round of programming support, we were able to provide supports to both qualified donees as well as non-qualified donees. Um, And I'm hoping this is something that we can talk more about and share our experience. We also found other ways of working with non-qualified donees, including, for instance, supporting the legal fees of a partner organization that was seeking charitable status and finding other ways to really help to build the capacity and infrastructure of the organizations we're working with. But maybe those partnerships didn't look exactly like traditional sort of grants. There are many other networked organizations on this call and across the country who are doing great work in this space. And I think it's really important that we're learning from one another so that we can move forward more quickly as a country and as a sector. I think it's really important in this vein to seek out complementarity as opposed to similarity. Now, I'll give you one example that's relevant to the Rideau Hall Foundation's experience, and it's about sort of our origin story. So the Community Foundations of Canada, a separate organization, incubated the Rideau Hall Foundation as it was born. That makes it sound like an alien, but basically CFC took it upon themselves as an in-kind contribution to build up the RHF as a separate independent organization. CFC has a different mission, a different vision than the Rideau Hall Foundation, a different way of working, a different type of culture. And yet by giving the RHF an early home at a critical time, it helped us to grow and to reach kind of the position that we are today. That relationship of the RHF being incubated by CFC was never intended to be a permanent ongoing relationship, but it allowed the infrastructure to build while we uh, were able to build up our own kind of resource base of operations. The Rideau Hall Foundation is now in the position of providing that kind of similar support, in-kind support to other organizations. So for instance, we provide back-end administrative capacity For another project, another organization called the Arctic Inspiration Prize, as it's working to build up its own infrastructure and capacity across the north. So different ways of working that, again, there aren't that many examples of across the country, but I think those examples need to be shared so that, that more of us within the sector can figure out new ways of approaching collaboration. I think it's also really important to not assume that things have to be done the way they've been done before, either by your organization or, or by others. One of the resources that I pointed to in my handout is a book by Adam Kahane called Collaborating with the Enemy. And it sounds like super negative, but it's really not. It, it is, I found it to be a really interesting read that was more about how you think about your own values, how you articulate those values, and how you approach different ways of coming to consensus. So it really sets aside a hierarchical kind of top-down approach to decision-making in favor of a shift to more collaborative thinking and working and to opening yourself up to different viewpoints and how doing so will inevitably lead to more innovative outcomes. So the third point I want to speak to is that people matter. And maybe this is obvious, particularly in the sector, but I think it's worth spending a little bit of time on. So yes, the partnership um, that we're talking about, the types of partnerships are between organizations, but people and the relationships uh, between those people are the critical glue and I think enabler of success. Now partnerships take time and attention. Genuine relationships cannot be fast-tracked and cannot be transactional. Uh, This is a sector that's driven by passion and heart. So again, this may very well be obvious, but I think it's worth reiterating. And I think it's something that other sectors can learn from. I think it's also important not to assume that the will or mission of an organization will win out over the people putting the good ideas and partnerships into motion. So the people across our teams are our most important kind of ambassadors and most valuable resource. And partnership development can be hard. It can be exhausting. If the people who are at the forefront of of partnership development are not engaged uh, or invested, it's just not going to work. Staying on the theme of people, it's important to be really invested in the success of your partners. I want to talk about someone on my team whose name is Sabrina Marcus, no relation, but Sabrina leads a program called Canadian Innovation Week, which takes place every May. So it's coming up around the corner between May 16th and 20th this year. And it's an opportunity that the RHF has developed to shine a spotlight On innovative work that's happening all across the country over a concerted period of time by all sectors. So, it's a program that's grown year over year as the CIW kind of platform has evolved. So, we're constantly thinking about how can we make sure um, that what we're offering will be of great value to our partners? How can we be curious and excited about our partners' successes? Now, Sabrina is the face of this program, and her interactions with each and every partner are personal, and just the enthusiasm she brings when she learns about what someone else is doing and how they're growing and how they're innovating. It's just a real inspiration for, for our team. And it's an approach that I'm trying to take into my day-to-day life because it's just a happier way to be. I also wanna talk very briefly about someone else on my team who I'm learning a lot from, and it's his name is Bill Mintrum. So Bill is our director of Indigenous and Northern Relations. And Bill and I work closely in many programs and he has shared with me and, and helped me learn that partnerships with Indigenous organizations in particular can take a, a different approach, that the relationships really matter and that they take time. The Rita Hall Foundation is a non-Indigenous led organization, but it, we're an organization that is very much committed to learning from Indigenous leadership, as well as to reconciliation in Canada. Now, I've learned from Bill in particular that partnership development with Indigenous organizations, again, might look different, it might not be linear, but this different worldview in facts, in fact, I think leads to stronger partnerships that are centered and really anchored on relationships. And I think that's a valuable principle that holds for partnership development with indigenous communities and organizations, as well as with non-indigenous contexts. The fourth idea that I'd like to share, people matter, yes, details also matter. This is really about figuring out sort of your parameters for decision-making, as well as your accountabilities and timelines, including sort of the sunset period for each partnership that you're developing. And to write them all down, plan ahead for moments to evaluate how the thing is working and have those moments be almost cyclical so that you're not just evaluating things or realizing, hey, it's worth looking at this when things are going south, because it will be much harder to do. So really just taking the time to write down the details because details do matter and they can provide that overarching framework that can then allow for the creativity and the flexibility and being agile. Plan for anticipated as well as unanticipated costs. So the turnover of people, expanded project scope, the fact that there's a global pandemic happening, things that you might not have been able to anticipate when you built the initial partnership. And think ahead about financial management. There's a a poet named, I can't remember his first name, but Machado is his last name, and I believe he's Portuguese. And it's that there is no path. The path is made by walking. And I think that's really true and, and resonant when it comes to working in partnership. There are some cases where you have to do it to understand what it's going to be. And that is not very eloquent, but I think that's just of what Machado was getting at. I think it, related to the details being important, I think it's important to not assume that a lack of clarity equates being innovative or flexible, if you have a clear framework, it'll ultimately allow you the space to do the good work. since you've cut down on kind of the unknowns and the misunderstandings, which will inevitably come up from the get-go. This really comes down to the strength of governance that's in place and how it can be a critical enabler that can actually help you to act in ways that are nimble, agile, and responsive if you've thought ahead about what that decision-making framework should look like. Thinking about a relevant example with the Rideau Hall Foundation, I would point to a program that we work in partnership with called the Michener Awards Foundation. So the Michener Awards, again, are a separate organization named in honor of former Governor General Roland Mitchner. And really they exist to celebrate and shine a light on public service journalism in the country. Very much a strong alignment of values with the work and mission of the Rideau Hall Foundation. And we were very much interested in getting behind the work that they were doing and seeing how we could provide the organization with greater sustainability and greater capacity and infrastructure. With the Mitchell Awards Foundation, we actually said, okay, well, let's walk before we run. We set a time frame on our partnership of a two-year kind of period to, again, test it out, to get to know each other, just to understand how we might work in collaboration. And then there's a built-in moment to take the time, step aside, see how it's going, and then either renew or deepen or change in whatever way we think both make sense. So that felt... I mean, it not only felt like the right thing to do, it felt like a great way to minimize risk on all sides, just to give us that set period that was enough of a time frame to meaningfully work together without asking anyone to overcommit to something they weren't necessarily comfortable with. The last good idea is around trust and trust mattering most. You will be much more able to move more quickly and to go farther together if there's trust and open communication between partners. I can't really emphasize this enough, but just the importance of investing early in a culture of trust within your partnership. How do you do that? Well, you do what you said you're going to do. You act in ways that are honest and open. You have a commitment to transparency. You over communicate, especially on sticky issues. And I think it's also important in this piece to not assume that one partner holds all the cards or all the risk, that you know what the other partner is thinking or what's driving them. Or what their experience has been. I'll also say that I I think trust goes both ways. And it's really important to recognize that, especially when the power dynamic is a big issue. And I know we're talking about partnerships across the sector, but when you're thinking about power dynamics, even within the charitable and nonprofit sector, issues like funder and recipient and the power dynamic between that type of partnership can emerge. Now, There's historically been an emphasis on the risk being absorbed by the funder in any kind of granting relationship, but recipients of funding are equally taking on risk in accepting funds from any contributor. So they need to trust the funder as they're also pitching their wagon and reputation to the values of that funder. So all to say, setting the groundwork with strong channels for communication, having a commitment to transparency and a willingness to be vulnerable and speak clearly to your organizational successes strengths, and challenges, helps to level the playing field and create the foundation of trust so that when those inevitable bumps in the road do come up, you have already set the stage for grace and for resolution. We take time at the RHF to talk about partnership a lot. What's working, what isn't working, why, how we can be better partners. And time and time again, trust is always a hallmark kind of characteristic of partnerships that are working really, really well. So I've talked about the five, I snuck in a sixth at the outset, which is to be vulnerable. And I'm going to sneak in a seventh very quickly before I turn it back to you, Elizabeth. And it's just to, again, think about the end of the partnership as well. So I I, I use the Michener example as one piece that had an explicit timeline horizon, but more deeply than that, I think the example between the Community Foundations of Canada incubating the Rideau Hall Foundation and planning for a very successful end of that relationship made such a huge difference to our ability to maintain a great relationship between the RHF and CFC today, and to just make sure that happened in a way that was really, really smooth. We we consciously uncoupled before it was cool. And I became CEO of the Rito Hall Foundation just at the tail end of that period. And I can see now in retrospect how thoughtfully it was done in a way that really set us up for success. There are other examples that I can speak to maybe over the conversation around partnerships that we had to exit more abruptly. And sometimes those, those comes with their own risk elements and are disrupting, but happy to go into more detail uh, on that piece as well. All to say we have big challenges that are complex ahead of us around climate, food security and inclusion, shifting geopolitical realities and widening gaps in access to opportunity. These challenges are going to require complex and new solutions, uh, and they're going to require us to find new ways of collaborating and working together. Problems can only be solved by working together and by changing the nature of how we do so. I just want to thank you all for the work that you're doing in the sector and for taking the time to learn about some of of my thoughts. And I'm, I'm really hopeful that we can now surface reactions that you have and to hear from your experience as well. So thank you. And Elizabeth, with that, I'll turn back to you.
0: Thank you. That was remarkable. I've done a lot of work on on collaboration and partnership, and I've never heard it all brought together so thoughtfully and in a really useful and, and manageable framework. So thank you. And I think you've hit a chord with the audience with your quote from Antonio Machado. Lots of applause for that. We have a number of questions already coming in. Right out of the gate, we have a question. What about a potential partnership, in quotes, with an organization who may be viewed as a competitor? in terms of attention, funding, staff resources to advance work in a similar area. Many years ago, I worked on a project where I think it was Mary Ocala from Costi called it coopetition Mm -hmm. and and the art and science of, of doing that. So the question is, any thoughts about how to navigate requests from such a potential partner to work together to ensure mutual value rather than favoring one organization over another?
1: Yeah, it's a great and very real kind of question. So it relates to my one of my, I don't know what, one or two, but just focusing on um, complementarity as opposed to similarity, just because things can be a bit less fuzzy when you do so. But I think also, I, I think it's a, um, a bit of a misnomer to think that resources in the sector are finite. I think that there is room for all of us, and when you are partnering with an organization, if your primary focus remains like the thing that you're both trying to achieve as a starting point, and then again, building the right framework for partnership around that thing that is your shared interest, it's a great kind of North Star and can be a piece that that helps to cut away some of that noise. I think that the, the greater the trust relationship, the greater the transparency, the greater the communication, the more that you can actually celebrate the successes of your partners as opposed to coming at it from that sort of deficit or competitive um, mindset. Way easier said than done. I, I recognize that. But I don't know if, Elizabeth, you, if you have other reactions or thoughts to, to that question.
0: I, I think it's a it's hugely important question because I think if the sector is going to deliver on its mission and, and really accelerate impact it's going to take some of those sometimes compromising relationships and partnerships in order to do that to raise it up and I I think just an extra element is sometimes needing to park the organizational ego and focus on who is the constituency what are you trying to achieve and sometimes that refocus can help prioritize and where's the shared values and where is the shared goal and I, and I guess really articulating that shared goal and keeping that front and center and I think that was your very first point here's a, another layer to it but perhaps with a bit more Stuff involved. How do you navigate a relationship with multiple partners who have had conflicts with each other in the past? What do you do at the Christmas table
1: when all the families <laughs> come in together and how do you keep the peace? So, yeah, I don't know that there's one answer to that question. From our perspective, it's been really helpful for the partnerships that we've engaged in that we can bring sort of a neutrality to the space. And that neutrality can help to encourage people to park the ego a little bit. So, really trying to model and emphasize celebrating each other's successes and not being rooted in the past has been a practical way forward from our perspective. But again, these are not easy questions. They don't have necessarily super obvious answers. I think, again, just really open collaboration. I think talking about what didn't go right in the past too is key. If there are wounds that have taken place or history that is troubling between organizations that you're trying to either bring together or, or work through. It's really hard to pretend like that didn't happen. So I think it comes down to that sort of starting point at the beginning of a partnership development, as you're thinking about what are the table stakes? What didn't work well before? How can we make sure that that doesn't happen again? And being as transparent and frank as possible at that starting point, or then, and then moving forward, if things start to go south, or if problems begin to emerge again, Calling those problems, being open about those problems, as opposed to letting them fester, as you would in like any healthy relationship with the family member or or a partner. So
0: yeah. exactly, and I think that it also taps back into a number of your points that you made. It's people matter, details matter, having that transparency, building the trust. We we're in an early conversation of a partnership with an organization, and the Indigenous lead said, "Well, let's move at the pace of trust." So I give credit to that concept to, to Conrad Prince, who's doing the reconciliation project at Save the Children. It's a really profound framing. Like, we'll go as fast as we can, and we need to get the essentials down first. It's a good parameter. A couple of practical questions about doing partnership and funding relationships. Doreen asks, first, thank you, Teresa. In one of your examples, you mentioned the importance of having a contingency plan. Would you advocate for including contingency funding in grants? Hmm.
1: So, it's a great question. I'm, I'm not as well versed, frankly, in best practices related to grant making. So, I don't want to speak for those who might be uh, better positioned to, to do so. Our approach when it comes to the grants that we're getting behind at the Rita Hall Foundation is to be pretty flexible and just to, to acknowledge that the organizations that we're supporting are closest to the work, closest to the, the priorities that need to happen, and, and need operational funding support that is sustainable. So those are some of the priorities that we try to, and the values that we try to put at the forefront of any granting relationship that we develop. And we also try to do so in a way that's collaborative with the person or the organization that we're we're issuing the funding to. So working with that partner organization to figure out what is the right spectrum of pieces of the puzzle that need to be worked into this kind of collaboration agreement or this funding agreement. I don't want to suggest that I'm an expert in that particular space, but again, it's really leading with trust to and thinking about our working relationship with those we are uh, issuing grants to and trying to just stay true to that that trust-based philanthropic
0: priority. A little bit different but kind of related, any thoughts on where a small nonprofit could find external help, support, guidance to explore and enter partnerships in a systematic and efficient way? Yeah,
1: it's a great question. I wish there were more conversations like this happening at scale across the country. So it depends where you are in the country. I think Makeway is doing some really interesting work in terms of providing a scalable solution and platform for nonprofits, helping to build capacity and provide some of that back end infrastructure as a nonprofit is working towards more permanent charitable status. I think Imagine Canada is doing some interesting work in this space too. You know, I'd be happy to follow up with anyone on this call more directly for our experiences at the Rito Hall Foundation and the networks that we've become part of related to work in innovation, in learning, in giving, in volunteerism, or in, I always forget the last one, leadership. In any one of those spaces, we're happy to connect one-on-one for another conversation about where we might be able to facilitate some introductions because there aren't enough broad networks. And I think I'm, I'm really committed to the idea that I recognize that we have this kind of vantage point or perspective on what's happening across the country. And I'd love to be able to help foster some connections
0: for folks on this call as well. Terrific. Thank you. You spoke about risk, and I think there's risk in every relationship, partnership, collaboration. How do you deal with the liability piece when you have a partner? So, for example, organization does something that brings negative attention and or financial liability to organization B. So I guess this is a little bit of now things are going sideways or south.
1: Yeah. Yeah. To the extent possible early on, you need to plan for what those risks might be. and and try to anticipate what might go wrong. And there are broad ranges of risk from legal to insurance to reputational to financial. Enterprise, wide risk management can be all encompassing and it can take up all of your time, but it can also be done simply and more intuitively. And so a practice that we engage with at the Rideau Hall Foundation is to kind of surface on a pretty regular basis. Let's just take stock of how are we thinking about risk across the organization and across our partnerships? And do we need to do anything differently? We're always just trying to keep a bit of a watchful eye on how things change because we know things Will change over time. So, one example that I can speak to really quickly, and I can, I can name names without worrying, I think, is, is a partnership that we engaged in a couple of years back. I'll try to keep this a short story with uh, a global program called Pitch at Palace. And we felt like it had all of the right things in it. So, it was a program that was supporting young entrepreneurs across the country. It was taking place in 60 countries, a pitch competition for entrepreneurs that helped connect entrepreneurs across the country to investors and to new opportunities. So it had innovation, it had youth, it had national scale, and it had celebrating excellence in Canada. It wasn't happening in Canada. So we agreed. We entered into a partnership with the organization that ran Pitch of Palace uh, to actually bring it to Canada. It was a great success. We planned for how we would roll this out in six different cities, coast to coast to coast, we learned a lot about really excellent entrepreneurs and we were able to connect those entrepreneurs to funders. The reason it fell apart, frankly, and I'm being very direct here is that the figurehead of the program, it was founded by Prince Andrew, the Duke of York. And this was circa 2017 or 18 or so, just before everything went South in that way. And, and so when I was thinking through the risks to this program it was not that there'd be this major reputational piece that was a deal breaker for us. It was difficult because the mechanics of the program were so good and the like the bones of it were great. And so it was it felt like a, a real loss at the end of the day to not be able to continue with it. But you just reached this point where you know that you need to walk away. And that was that became a clear question. There was the objective analysis that we had done, and then there was this the gut. These our values are not syncing up here. And we actually stepped away from the program and and cut ties more publicly, which is why I feel comfortable saying it out loud in this intimate room of
0: 157 people and being posted later on the website. No, that's hugely important because there are times when it has to be public. There's clear lines that you can't cross and it's important for your own reputational integrity that you're out in front before it happens. The flip side of it, when you've had a successful partnership, how do you measure it? I mean, we're obsessed with measuring everything. Do you need to measure it? Can you just know that it was successful because X, Y, and Z was accomplished? Or is there a due diligence around measuring the success or failure of the partnership?
1: Yeah, I think that there is. I think it's always worth taking that time to evaluate, although I totally agree. I mean, sometimes evaluation and measurement can just become, it's like ad nauseum, and you spend all your time evaluating, not your time doing the thing itself. That being said, as much as it's important not to only evaluate when things are going wrong, you wanna evaluate when things are going right as well. So I I think for all sorts of reasons, it's worth taking the time to build in that opportunity, just to to take take a step back and take stock of what you've done together and to figure out how you can talk about it publicly. I think we're all looking for ways to learn from each other. I think it would benefit the broader sector to hear about partnerships that are working effectively. I think often there's a definite funder dynamic to this as well. And and sharing the successes of partnership can also be helpful in that regard, in terms of profiling and putting a bit more of a, shining a bit of a spotlight on what's working really well. So I don't know if that answers the question, but yes, I I do think it's worth putting in some systemic kind of way or systematizing, that's the right, the better word, way of measuring progress, but without letting it completely bog you down. I wanted to work this in and I didn't get a chance to, so I'll, I'll say it now. But I think a partnership can be successful, even if the thing itself is not successful. So you and your partner organization may design a collaborative model to do a certain thing and you're innovating and you're trying and you're both putting skin in the game and you're both putting resources and your best efforts and you trust each other and you've tried something new and it doesn't work. That's going to happen sometimes. Like the thing itself, just because the thing itself doesn't happen the way you thought or hoped it would is not necessarily the measure of whether it was a good partnership or not. So I just think it's really important to think about assessing the partnership as well as the outcome that you were hoping to achieve together.
0: Oftentimes, the relationship may produce and reinvent itself, and the longer trajectory of that is way beyond the line of sight of any evaluation. Totally. Yeah. You know, it could be 10, 15 years down the road. And and when you go back to the origin of how did it all start, there's these other things that happened that built really s- a strong foundation of relationship.
1: Or you may do something else together down the road, like what's right in a different context.
0: Yeah. Yeah, But the seeds of it reside there. I I think this is an interesting question. What does leadership look like in a collaborative environment? Now, there's all kinds of models of leadership. What are your thoughts on what kinds of leadership models work well?
1: That's a big question. We could probably spend like a whole next five ideas on that question alone. I I really think I'll go back to one of the concepts I mentioned earlier that I think this notion of top down leadership is really like control and command. Is super outdated and is not part of the culture of building collaborative partnerships. There's not a space for it or a place for it in collaborative partnerships. As a leader myself, I'm trying to always set the table to bring forward others' ideas and to try to serve as like I. I I came into this conversation. I'm I'm not the expert in this area, but and so if I can create the space and conversation to lift up others and to give voice to others, I think that's an, an approach that kind of bodes well in any kind of collaborative partnership approach. Just the, I, I really feel strongly that the, the old power uh, principle around control and command leadership is not the way forward. And it doesn't have a space uh, or role to play in building healthy partnerships. And again, that is also replicated like in life.
0: I want to follow up with Doreen's question around contingency funding. Somebody responded to that in the Q&A. So just to share to everyone, this is from Barry Waldman. I've found that most funders are uncomfortable with contingency funding, per se, because it provides no assurance of impact. If you can break down the nature of the contingencies, that's easier for their funder to trust. So I think that's a good piece of advice. Thank you, Barry. We have another question. We're an intermediary organization trying to promote multiple organizations to collaborate on a project. Do you have any insights, recommendations on navigating the power imbalance between big and small, ensure that everyone has a voice at the table? So we talked about the power differential and money, but what about size, which is also sometimes money? These things are related.
1: I think as an intermediary, you're in a really interesting uh, position and you have a really great opportunity to level the playing field for the different partners you're working with. So I think the onus will be on on you as the intermediary organization to help lift up, uh, make sure that each of the partners that you're either receiving funding from or grant giving funding to have equal voice at the table, but that you're the one who's setting the stage for the dance to happen. And so... I think uh, you do have a great opportunity and ability to make sure that you're giving space and voice and spotlight to each of those organizations, no matter what their kind of size is. And the fact that you're an intermediary can maybe, maybe it positions you in a way that is a bit more neutral in that regard to be able to set that table appropriately.
0: And I think that that's a good segue to this other question, which is, is there a maximum number of partners you can have before it becomes untenable? Too many cooks in the kitchen, and is it really about how you set the table? And back to your very first point, form follows function, and just designing to the the complexity of the partnerships.
1: Yeah, it's such a great question, because you can sort of imagine the number, the right number, but then the partnership itself will have its own sort of lifespan and may evolve and may grow and become more complex than you anticipated. So it's both the right number of partners to be working with, and then the right size of the things that those partners are working on, if you will. It's a tough balance to get right. I don't have that figured out yet, but it's something that we're constantly looking at because there are so many great initiatives and opportunities that that are out there. I mean, I think with our team, we kind of know when it feels like too much. And we try to follow the instincts of the team in terms of when it's feeling like we're reaching capacity and stretch. And then when we are at that stretch point, we figure out, okay, is it, if we take on more, what else needs, what needs to change? Is something else winding down or can we bring on additional capacity? And then sometimes it, it goes down to where you have to say no, or where you can maybe help to redirect. So Say No, I think was another one of the resources. A Good Nose was another one of the resources that I either put on the list or was going to. I can't remember now. There's a great HBR piece that I found pretty valuable in terms of like smart, smart nose when you don't have, when you, you just don't look at the capacity despite your sort of best interest and, and your best effort, I'll say, to get involved. I'm not
0: sure if that was helpful, but. I think it was. And I would just add to that. I mean, I think feeling comfortable to step back and say, if we want to do that, we have to change and, and it being prepared to redesign in process. It, it, if we want to go there, then this is what has to be put in place and it's okay to change track.
1: It's yes, absolutely. It, it It's kind of weird not to change track. In fact, like given just how partnerships unfold, there are always going to be evolutions that you need to be able to respond to and figure out how you will make decisions together with your partner when those eventual pieces change.
0: There's one last question because we're at 156, but I think we've got time to slip one more in. This is from Shen, and we are a funding organization. Do you have any suggestions on building relationships when our organization's members, the people, have limited appointment terms? So turnover, how do you manage that? Yeah. It's, it's tricky. I think there is an
1: institutional memory that needs to be developed at, at the organization. And it, I know it runs counter to what I earlier said around the, that people are the most important. Like, yeah, yes, like these relationships, like Sabrina on our team is absolutely the face and is building these relationships across the country in support of this initiative we have called Canadian Innovation Week. But how do we help ensure that what she is learning and surfacing becomes institutional knowledge and builds the bank of our own corporate memory. So that's a bit bit of infrastructure that needs to be built on the inside to make sure that we're not losing the the great intelligence and learnings that she's been able to surface.
0: Yeah. Lots of people putting stuff in the chat as well. So thank you for that. Thank you to... Thank you to everyone who's engaging in different ways. I'm watching three different columns to see where stuff is coming in, which means that it's, it's a sign of a great conversation. Thank you, Teresa, for an incredible conversation. I, I think I'm, I'm hearing all kinds of applause in the chat room, but it's been a really helpful and thoughtful set of comments and responses and insights to what's clearly a lot of really great experience in your back pocket. I want to also say thank you to our audience, really engaged, lots of insight, lots of experience. Thank you for being here. Everyone is busy. So we really appreciate the time that you've taken to join us. Thank you for listening to five good ideas on how to build thriving partnerships within the charitable and nonprofit sector with Teresa Marquez. We link to Teresa's five good ideas, resources, and a full transcript of the session in our show notes. You can find all of our five good ideas sessions from past seasons on the Matri website at www.matri.com and you can subscribe to the Five Good Ideas podcast to continue to listen to our best sessions. See you next time.